Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? Good, Mike. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, and you're sitting where for for this special edition? I'm in Hudson, New York, uh, about 90 miles north of the city. And by the way, half of Brooklyn has emptied out and come here during the coronavirus. That's amazing. (laughs) Lots of lots of change. Yeah, and I and I'm sitting up in Calgary, Canada. Wow, wow. Anyway, clearly a lot of the news, the news that actually prompted us to put the podcast on hold and prompts us to do this remotely ourselves is all the news around COVID-19. In this edition of the show, we have a terrific guest in the Dean of uh, the College of Communication at Boston University, Mariette DiCristina, and a really excellent interview, and we'll get onto that in a moment. But Gary and I kind of prepping for this, we said, you know, so what's the news? We usually cover several different topics. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to talk about COVID-19, but I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more from a communicator's standpoint. There have been a couple of surveys. Um, Both of them kind of took place in in, in mid to late March, but one from uh, Weber Shandwick was kind of interesting. They were surveying people 16th through 18th. Uh, At that time, 55% of Americans were saying it's overblown. A number of Americans who felt they were at risk at the time were about a third. Americans who felt informed about coronavirus, only one in 10 said they they didn't feel informed. So there's lots of information. Confidence in, in key groups was high. Medical profession, business, government was high even, although the government was a little bit of a twist where you had high ratings for like the CDCs, but not so high for like NIH and HHS. And a lot of people who work for large corporations seem to be moved by the fact that their employers were putting safety first. Mm -hmm. Then another survey, like the week later, done by Peppercom and Institute for Public Relations, more than half of the respondents said COVID had had a moderate or major impact on their business operations. My guess is that's probably gone up Mm -hmm. uh, in recent weeks. Eight of 10 respondents said moderately or extremely concerned about potential impact on COVID on their company. So you're already seeing it just in the week, you know, that increase Ramp uh, ramp up in terms of people's concerns. And then more than three quarters of respondents, 81, said the communication function has been important or very important to their company's response. And in terms of preparedness, 30% said uh, their organizations were very prepared for this. 55% said somewhat prepared. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is when you got to the communications function, the percent that said communications was very prepared or somewhat prepared was higher than the general company. So 41% were very prepared 46 somewhat prepared. So that means that 87% felt their communications function were among, were among the most prepared. What are you hearing out there from talking to colleagues? You know, I have to say first, Mike, that I am, you know, as somebody who's been around this crowd for a long time, CCOs, uh, I'm really proud because I can see in the actions that some major companies have been taking, a lot of companies, the influence of an informed and trusted advisor to the boards and to the, and to the CEOs. Absolutely. Decisions made about people, first and foremost, putting people first mm-hmm. with uh, extension of uh, benefits, pay, even companies like Boeing that were in, you know, going through tough times, shutting down factories, but continuing to pay the people. CEOs taking no salary or salary cuts as a symbolic measure in these tough times. And I can see the influence of CCOs in all of those decisions, yeah. living your values at a time when they're most on display. And I'm also hearing uh, in echoing what you see in one of those surveys, which is the communications function 
maybe was a little bit ahead of some of the other C-suite partners yeah. in, in being able to handle something like this. And that's been my experience as well in talking to some companies during this. So look, there's nothing good about COVID-19, yeah. but it validates the work that's being done by the Page Society, the Institute for Public Relations, PRSA, and others in elevating the role of the CCO and the value that you deliver to your enterprise. Um, so I, I would first say pride in, in the work that they've done, Mike. Well, it's also the responses have been interesting, even seeing people shift manu manufacturing. I know I saw a story where uh, LVMH, which is a producer of a lot of uh, luxury brands, Christian Dior mm -hmm. ended up uh, shifting uh, one of its manufacturing plants to producing hand sanitizer. New Balance, a company that started in the Boston area, they converted making athletic shoes so using some of the same fabrics to make masks. Mm -hmm. Even have uh, advertised the fact they said, you know, they did uh, some advertising that said, made shoes yesterday, making masks today. <laughs> you know, Mike, I'll give you an example. So where I think we haven't done well, but this is long term, it's not specific uh -huh. to COVID, but related to it. Is, is some of these discussions that have gone on between 3M and the president, yeah. GM and the president, Ford and the president, um, about the Defense Production Act. And th the idea that you can switch an automotive plant to a ventilator plant overnight may seem doable to a politician. But those of us who, like you and I, have worked in industry know it's not possible. And those right. folks are doing their best that they possibly can. And it, yeah, so you reflect on that and say, we just have never really done a good job about communicating on just how incredibly hard manufacturing is yeah. and how in incredibly difficult it is to manage supply chains in mm -hmm. periods where, I mean, demand just fell, didn't go down, ramp down. It just fell off a cliff, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so some of that has been a big takeaway for me is, is the complexity of global manufacturing is something that we need to to work on. It may seem like a small point, but look at the reputations of 3M and GM and Ford and what they've gone through in this period. Yeah. And it's not so small. Yeah. And I've also been heartened by a post-competitive sense that's been created in this environment too. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lifebuoy, you know, the, the mm -hmm. soap brand. They are working with competitors to try and give people information around how to keep sanitized, how to, you know, not only wash your hands, but do other things, um, which is pretty remarkable. It's kind of they put down all of their weapons and just locked arms and said, there's something we've got to do. Uh, in, in order to help the population. Mm -hmm. uh, but you said something earlier on that brings me another notion too, is that some CEOs have done a pretty spectacular job in terms of how they've responded to the current crisis. I don't know if, you, if you've had a chance to see the video from a few weeks ago from Marriott's CEO, yes, uh, yeah. Arnie Sorensen, yeah. um, where they had to make some very difficult decisions in terms of laying people off. You could hear it in his voice. You could see it in his body language of how difficult the decision was, but that also that he wasn't going to take pay, that his uh, all of his direct reports uh, had agreed to reduce their, cut their salaries in half and all the different moves that he was trying to make before having to take, you know, any movement on, on people. And I think that that's been heartening. I mean, the, yes. uh, I, I know even here at Enbridge, uh, Al Monaco, the, uh, the CEO here made a point in a, in a broad internal conversation that putting people at risk is going to be our very last resort. Mm -hmm. um, I think these things are, are, are very important. They do show the, some of the, the, the methods and practices that uh, you teach in the classroom uh, that we've tried to adhere to uh, as we've operated in large companies are, are, are being valued. Yes, I, I agree. So I'll throw it back to you, Mike, on that then. So I, I think the point you make is a really great one, sort of this post-competitive attitude. We've talked a lot about on this podcast and in our classrooms about this new movement toward purpose mm -hmm. in, in business, a mm -hmm. stakeholder versus a shareholder approach. 
Do you think this, this crisis will come out of it with a new form of capitalism, one with a bigger heart? I, I think so. I think, uh, you know, people are moved by their times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think that uh, this is one of those interesting moments. I think it's, I think it's going to spawn a couple of things and, and some of them may not be, you know, wholly positive. I mean, I think what will happen in part is there's going to be some element of fear as we move forward. Um, we will all know to prepare for pandemics. <laughs> I can't remember how many companies I've been with where we've, as part of the communications plan, we actually had a plan for dealing with a pandemic. Completely, yeah. You know, but we all thought that we would use it probably sometime after the zombies had invaded. <laughs> you know, we, we, I don't think in our framework of mind, we thought it would happen. None of us went out and stored masks. None of us went and got ventilators. Yes. Uh, you know, so, so I think that the, the question of how do we prepare for the future will be interesting. But I do think that we're going to have more heart. Yes. Uh, you know, there's that element of we're all in this together. Right? I agree. I agree. And, and I think it, it's showing through in CEO letters. It's showing through in internal podcasts. It's showing through in messages externally from companies. The other, I think, important lesson is the importance of being integrated. That is all disciplines within an organization being integrated in order to face this challenge. And in corporations, that's going to mean, you know, all your health, safety, major business representation, HR, IT, government, communications people are going to have to be at that crisis management table. Yeah, exactly. And I would give you, Mike, you know, an example of lessons learned to that very point is, you know, at the beginning of this, more so at the beginning than, than now, although it's still playing out, companies that on sick leave policies, paid sick leave policies, yep. for example, saying, uh, you know, we've either they didn't provide paid sick leave or it was very minimal. And then when they were called on it, because at grocery store chains and other places mm-hmm. where people have to work, Amazon got called on this. They said, well, we've expanded our sick leave policies. Well, the, what they did, paid sick leave policies, what they did was they would pay people if they tested positive. Right. Right. And so that was a decision driven by, in my view, lawyers, mm-hmm. HR professionals, sure. et cetera, rather than the communicator being in the room saying, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, yeah. our, our people are checking out a thousand people every day at this grocery store and they need to work and they, they don't have benefits that can pay for um, treatment if they get sick. Right. The communicator being in the room with the other folks in the C-suite on those kinds of decisions would have prevented the pain that those companies endured reputationally because they, when the pain did come, they changed the policy to the right one, right? Yeah. So to your point about integration and thinking about everything, the finances of the company, the operations, the people of the company, and the reputation, I think is something that will um, increasingly come out of this. Yeah, and one of the things I'm learning talking to our peers in companies is there's a lot of also uh, monitoring the situation, mm-hmm. you know, sort of internal pulse surveys uh, to, to stay in contact with that remote uh, workforce. Exactly. Uh, as well as to monitor how people are, are receiving messages. Uh, so I think all of those things are, are, are good. I think there's also interesting new spaces for communicators, Yes. Uh, you know, in terms of using different types of technology, trying to find uh, different ways at two-way interaction, uh, developing tips and tricks, you know, on how to use IT and work at home. Oh, man, I was so ignorant, Mike. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I've learned so much about technology. Thanks to my graduate assistant, you know, during this process, Catherine. Really, it has accelerated my learning in that space a thousand percent. So anyway, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I think it's a learning moment for all of us. And since it's a learning moment, who better to have on as a guest than our Dean at the College of Communication here at Boston University. Hello everyone, Uh, we have a great guest today on The Crux. 
Mariette Di Cristina is the new dean of Boston University's College of Communication. And now when I say new dean, and I'm making rabbit ears here, I mean, Mariette started back in September, which seems like a long, long time ago here in mid-April. Her first year on the job, of course, was interrupted by the changes and challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic and all the changes that, that it's really brought to BU. And Mariette I, has really been working around the clock to lead the team in the college through the transition to virtual learning. She'll tell you about it in a minute. We made that transition like in a week, which is gotta, has to be a world record. Let me give you a little more background before I invite Mariette into the conversation. Before coming to BU, Mariette was editor-in-chief and executive vice president of the highly respected magazine, Scientific American, actually one of my favorites, as well as executive vice president of the magazine publisher, Springer Nature. Mariette was the first woman to lead Scientific American since its founding in 1845, and previously as executive editor of Popular Science, another favorite of mine. She was named editor of the year by the magazine's publisher, Times Mirror Magazine. Mariette has also demonstrated deep commitment to her profession, serving as president of the National Association of Science Writers, and we definitely need more of them. Mariette has taught at NYU's School of Journalism and was a science writer in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Most importantly, Boston University honored her work in 2016 with the Distinguished Alumni Award. So, Dean DeCristina, welcome to The Crux. Thanks for having me so much. So for our listeners who are global in many ways, we hear from people all around the world in the communications profession about our, uh, this podcast. Tell them about BU's College of Communications, its areas of study, students, and maybe even a little history. Thanks a million, Gary. I really appreciate it. And it's great to be here with, with you and Mike to, to talk about College of Communication, which uh, when I started there was still known as the School of Public Communication. It's had a long and illustrious history. In fact, it stretches out more than 100 years ago. In 1914, Boston University offered its first journalism and advertising courses. So COM traces its roots back more than 100 years. But it was formally started as a school in 1947. And there it was founded as a school of public relations, the first in the United States dedicated to that. These days, it's the second or third largest, depending on enrollments in a given year, college at Boston University. And one of the things I think is so amazing about it is it's got a combination of both research into communications and the practice of communications at the very highest levels in all of the major disciplines. So film and TV, journalism, and the biggest department, mass communication, advertising, and public relations. Yeah. And there's a division which is called uh, Emerging Media Studies that kind of crosses across all of the college as well. So we have, you know, we've got the, you know, the practice at the highest levels, the research into what makes that work, and then looking at the sort of bleeding edge future of communication. Excellent. Some amazing alumni as well uh, across the, the journalism world, the PR world, just an amazing list, including yourself, which leads me to my next question. It's always great to be able to say nice things to your dean, too. You know, isn't that this, Mike, you know, absolutely. This, this podcast gives us that opportunity. So you had a great career and a very distinguished career in journalism. So what made you want to come back to BU? Yeah, right. I had pretty sweet role. Uh, still love the uh, work I was doing. And I, I came to Com because it was probably the only other place I can think of where I could have been so happy. And like a lot of people, for me, attending Com in the, in the 80s, it changed my life, literally. I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I sort of landed at the college with some idea of Oh, I don't know. I, I was interested in finding out things and sharing them, but I didn't know how to do that. And I had a wonderful professor uh, in my first, my introductory journalism class. His name was Jim Brand. He saw in me something I didn't know as a 19-year-old to see in myself. You know, he saw potential. And uh, he put me on a path by his classes and also recognizing in me and encouraging me to be a journalist. I mean, he, I thought, it was just some big game, <laughs> finding out stuff on a deadline and writing it up. And I think that was exhilarating. 
but it never occurred to me that you could get paid for this. Yeah. What are you majoring in? You know, you should go into journalism. You're good at this. And I, I thought, my goodness, people get paid for this? Awesome. So, <laughs> <laughs> that, that put me on a path. And I, you know, and I felt like returning to this college and the privilege, really, because it is a privilege, of working with wonderful staff, faculty, and students to help them find their paths was just you know an amazing opportunity so it's not why did i come but why wouldn't anyone want to come? exactly <laughs> <laughs> now we're doing this interview today uh remotely rather than in the bu podcast studios as we'd normally do them thanks to covid19 my guess is this is not what you expected when you signed on <laughs> as the new dean so how's it going well, you know, I mentioned the privilege of being here, and I've really seen that in, in full measure with the way people have responded. Gary at the beginning was mentioning, we, you know, we had a week or so to get ready. We actually had two or three days. <laughs> and it was, let's remember, folks, during spring break, while everybody was off, and just the speed of this pandemic, we knew we needed to take action for everybody's safety and well-being, but also to deliver on our commitments. So the faculty and staff just the, the, threw themselves into it. And I've been just amazed at the create the power of the creativity here. And I'm just going to name three things just yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, by way of example. On the very first day of going remote only, you know, TBU, the class that does WTBU, uh, managed to deliver their broadcast on time without the studio. <laughs> Uh, through, they did it through Zoom, uh, but they did the reporting in a half a dozen countries and places around the world because people had had to go home and they delivered it on deadline. Now, by the way, we've just figured out a couple of days ago a way to remotely control that broadcast so it doesn't have to go through Zoom anymore. It'll be going through uh, TBU's regular Oh, great. Yeah, a second one that I loved watching was uh, production and these hands-on classes, which we really value the experiences that we were able to give to students and to share ourselves and hands-on. But when you can't go hands-on, today's tools allow you to do things virtually. Yeah. Pilot testing software called FrameForge mm -hmm. in the uh, film and TV department, and that yeah. is free visualization software that we haven't actually been yet implemented until yeah. now. It's letting that department actually take a leap ahead that it's been trying to get to. This opportunity gave us the, that much. Yeah. And a third one that I just will mention is in the advertising department. You know, we've had the wonderful pitch fests where people get to share their portfolios. And now those are all housed online. So we'll be able to still have those interactions Perfect. with potential employers remotely. Yeah. And use these portfolios online as a resource. Those are just three. There are lots of others. Yeah. You know, we're just determined to give students an education that we can all be proud of despite the disruption from the pandemic. Yeah. Two things occur to me. One is there's probably some lessons learned out of this process. And then two, the, the other thing, even hearing you talk about the, the various new softwares that people are trying is how do you think this ultimately changes education at BU and in the College of Communication going forward. Yeah, was it Yogi Berra who said the problem with <laughs> speculating about the future? Anyway, I'm yeah. going to try it anyway. Uh, Yogi said lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> We're both Yankee fans. So. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Keep going on Yogi. We love it. Peace. I love the Red Sox too. <laughs> and I, I live right near the, near the park. Um, anyway, you know, I think it's just harkening back to fast turnaround. And I think, um, you know, I was at Scientific American for, for a very short time when September 11th happened. And also when I was at new editor-in-chief, Hurricane Sandy happened and shut, shut things down. And these time-boxed events in our lives shape the way we, we change and how we adapt. And one of the things I've learned from those kinds of experiences and this one is the first thing you have to absolutely do is despite the fast moving nature of things, you have to figure out a way to stop and think and stop and think with your, with your leadership. And remember that, uh, you know, it still makes sense to come together with a coherent plan around coordinating how you're going to communicate and around getting, making sure leadership are, 
are together and are on the yeah. same page. There are also a couple of others that I think we are applying lessons learned, and then I'll, I'll switch to the other question of, you know, some, some ways it might, might change this going forward. Yeah, after you stop and think and make a plan, it's important in this case to remember that this, this is a very different kind of event than some of these catastrophic things that have happened in the past, which were time boxed and physically boxed, right? They, were, they happened in a place at a certain window of time, even Hurricane Sandy, you know, the, it was certain places and you could say, okay, now it is done. Um, this one, we're still in the midst of it. And that causes us to have to remember certain things. You know, one is, first of all, that it's physical distance, not distancing, really not social distancing, although we're mm -hmm. using the term social distancing. You know, we have to be apart, but it's more important than ever that we are, are together using all the platforms at our disposal. And there are so many more, uh, more easily available now than in past events that we've just mentioned. You know, that's given us a chance to experiment in ways that where we understand and create a safe space that it's okay if we tried this or that thing on a, on a digital platform, it didn't quite work. Do you know, next time we, we learn and we do better. So we've seen a lot of learning, even in, we're just entering, let's remember folks, the fifth week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty new. Um, will it change how education works in the future? I'm sure in many ways that we don't even yet quite understand. But one thing I, that's really struck me that I'd like to mention is there's a big difference between the sort of, you know, the MOOCs, the massive online mm -hmm. classes and so on, and other online courses, which are, you create an asset, a video asset with some learnings, and you just put it somewhere and it stays there and people consume it over time. And that's, that's great. What we're currently doing, which is really delivery of, as powerfully as we can, best remote learning experience that we can create. You know, we still have the same number of faculty and staff mm -hmm. supporting everything we're doing. We still have the same infrastructure. This is a, you know, eventually it will be a time-boxed experience. But right now, one thing that's important is remembering that we are still integrated. We're still interacting. You're still drawing on those same resources to make it a powerful learning experience. And that engagement and support is still there. So there's a, how can we harness these online tools to continue to create as, as best as possible the, the level of engagement that a residential experience can give? I've named a few examples. I know we'll see others. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting point, Marriott, that you make about this time boxed. Mike and I have been through lead companies and agencies through a number of crises. You learn from each one. I compare this most closely to, there's never been anything like this. You know, I'm playing the accordion now with my hands like the president, um, <laughs> but invisible accordion. Most closely um, was the global financial crisis, of course, mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, I was at GE. We nearly went under as a result of that. And there was no time horizon when you knew this thing Good would point. end, right? And so you got up every day and cringed when you opened the newspaper. But we learned a lot. I learned a lot in that period as uh, about leadership. And you've mentioned some of the things purely from a crisis standpoint. Mm. Anything you've learned during this time as a leader? Yeah, right? that's a good question. I mean, I'm always learning as a leader every day. My, my father told me to try to learn something new every day. We <laughs> <laughs> try to you know, apply that. I think people appreciate clarity and they appreciate you telling them what you know when you can tell them. Right. I think you also really appreciate context, understanding where what the limits of those knowledge are. And most of all, I think people appreciate authenticity and you, you being like the real person. I kind of knew that, but I'm living it even more mm -hmm. now. You know, I feel like in many ways, one of the things I'm learning about is personal to me more than some of the others, which is, is the team's dynamics and what they need. You're all teaching me. I hope I'm equal to it. Yeah. I know I teach a crisis class. All of those things that you said, Mary, are exactly what we've been talking about. You know, what? nothing is good about this crisis, but for someone who teaches crisis, oh. it has been, you know, in real time, something that the students have really benefited from. And all of the things that you talked about there are central points to the curriculum that we've been discussing. Now, this is going to scare you. We've yeah, we've crowdsourced a few questions from COM students. 
And one student wanted to know, and you sort of covered this, but I'm going to ask it specifically, what was the biggest challenge for moving in two or three days from in-person to virtual yeah. instruction? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I love it that you uh, reach out to the students because one of my own personal regrets about this semester was having gotten the whole, what, three, three four months under my belt <laughs> at, the beginning, at the beginning of the semester, I was all excited to start a series of conversations with the students. So I love it that you engage them and uh, we, had a, we had a town hall last week. But the biggest challenge I would say is, is probably the, a, a pair of them, which is the speed of change and the uncertainty of the, the type of crisis we are dealing with. And you could see that reflected in the university's decisions and then the ones we had to take. So remember at first, I was so proud of us, you know, because at first we said, okay, while we encourage you to go home after the spring semester, it's okay if you stay here. Wanna and hang then, out, yeah. Right, you know, it's yeah. okay. Because if you feel safer here, we would like to, and we've always tried to take a, a student-centered approach on that. You know, one of the biggest challenges, that pair of challenges has really been rather unique and, and together, I think, make the biggest challenge. One of the responses I've seen, and I've tried to learn, take this lesson myself, is some universities have responded super quickly with decisions like we're canceling commencement or we're doing this or that. And BU has often taken the time to think, you know, hearkening back to something I said earlier, for another day or two to really weigh it to make sure that the decisions are student-centric. So I've seen, you know, in mm -hmm. response to this challenge, a good leadership approach, which I and myself am trying to learn from. It's been very methodical in many ways. We went through the spring semester, summer, and now taking a look at the fall. That kind of structure gives people confidence, too, in, in the thoroughness of the review. Yeah, and also taking that calendar approach, uh, which is kind of what I've been calling it to myself. I don't know. You, you can tell me what, what it's actually called. Shows people that decisions will be made in the course that they need to be made, but also I have found causes me and others to relax a little bit. Like it's, let's not talk about next year right now. That causes, a, a actually for me anyway, a reduction in uh, decision-making anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Yeah, it relieves you from solving all of the future puzzles. Excellent. <laughs> now, students also wanted to know more about the future of Calm. Mm. They said, I know you've only been here a few months, but... What are your thoughts about how communication education will change? Uh, and not specifically off of this COVID discussion, but you've come here, you've got a chance to see some of the classrooms, you've interacted with staff. What is it that you look at and you say, you know, I may want to tinker a little bit here or there. Here's where I think we could improve. Let's start with the foundation. You know, one of the things that I have been struck by over and over again is how if you want to get anything done in the whole world, communication is at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that I want to make sure, you know, no matter what we're all doing, and that we're putting our thought leadership around communication and how it ought to work in front of more eyes and ears. Um, that's something I think we've been a little modest, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying one, one thing about that. You know, and, and I think also foundationally, the things that we pride ourselves in giving, a great knowledge of how to conduct yourself as far as critical thinking and analytical thinking, a deep understanding of the way the world works from various arts and sciences classes, great hands-on experiences, all those will still be true and I think ought to still be true. I would like us to, to lean in on some of the places that we're already excellent on, you know, in, the, in these areas. And also, I think when we look at how the industries are all evolving, integrative media, cross-discipline skills, we have all of that. I mentioned earlier that Com has all of these disciplines under one roof, plus the research. I think in many ways, ways that we will step forward will be together in a more integrative way. So how can we continue to build partnerships across the departments? Um, emerging media studies is a great example of a start of one way to do that. I'll be looking for others. So there are several. And also, I think, you know, we would should lean into how data and analytical thinking overall can help inform the best communication. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting on the integrative piece because I think it's so true. And, and Gary and I have both seen it inside corporations where 
increasingly marketing people and PR people are using a lot of the same tools. They might be using them to reach different audiences or to convey different ideas. But it would seem that in a college, like the College of Communication, there are lots of great opportunities to look for synergies across all of those disciplines that we qualify as communication. Couldn't agree more. The journalists are using them as well, right? So what we're trying to do is increase engagement and ultimately understanding. And it's that understanding that we use to move the world forward. So, you know, one of the things, as I mentioned, that I would really love to do is is showcase more comms leadership and helping solve societal challenges from whichever part of the communication perspective. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Well, and and students are also, as you might imagine, in (laughs) the mix of the current situation, a little nervous about looking for a job. And uh, I've had conversations already this week with, with a few who had been counting on summer internships and some had actually had them lined up with agencies or organizations or businesses and that they've been informed that due to general hiring freezes, they're suspending their summer programs. Uh, many organizations are not even planning to be back until the, in the office until late summer at the earliest. And even given that, what does a 2020 graduate need to do? Yeah. So you've got the combo of some people counting on internships that now aren't going to happen. Then add to that people who are graduating at a point in time where most major companies, most major organizations have a hiring freeze. Yeah. So this is a very difficult time. It is. I mean, I think one thing we can all remember uh, is no matter where we are in the world, at our stage of our careers, it's challenging everywhere. (laughs) And um, the potential positive there is that people understand that. um, And people will always, 2020 is always going to have an asterisk next to it, I think, for a lot Mm -hmm. of five quick points I'd like to make on that. I won't try to belabor. First of all, Comms assets in your current experiences are still there. We've just launched a a virtual events series to help continue those interactions between amazing alumni and comms students now. I'm just working up another one, by the way, with um, Jay Rowey of HBO and Bonnie Hammer of NBC, where they're going to talk about the things you're doing now in class, uh, working with the remote (laughs) learning (laughs) are the very same things they're wrestling with in professional circles. Advantage you still have is that you're learning with the comfort and support of your faculty and staff. We were talking about uh, just the other day with those, with those two about um, how they're trying to think about how do they make programming where you can't have large scale teams shooting something and not just talk shows. Uh, how do you handle the, the script? Uh, led questions and so on. So the, the experiences you're having now, this caused me to think about, because I've been thinking very sadly, and I'm still, and it's still, we're all sad about it, about the constraints that we're working under, but mm-hmm. they caused me to think about the opportunities. So you still have an opportunity in those women. So that, that's one. The fact that you're leaving calm with the latest skills and your adaptability that we've already been imbuing the students with is an asset. The people who are already in the world for decades would love to know how to do the things that you know. So don't Absolutely, forget. yes. You're, that, that is no small thing. Um, third, you know, use your calm contacts well. You've mm-hmm. all had a chance to meet the leaders of tomorrow. Don't let those uh, contacts uh, lie fallow and, and continue to, to use the faculty, you know, the staff folks like, folks like me, as you, as you knew us, to, you know, to help make introductions. You know, fourth, I just want to mention, um, we're painfully aware of those delayed and canceled work experiences externally. I can't tell you much more about it right now, but pretty soon I hope I can tell you a little bit more about a pilot uh, program we want to run to help provide work experiences for comm students over the over the summer. So stay tuned. Give me mm, a few oh, more. Great. That sounds great. Yeah. On it. And then last thing, I, you know, fifth thing I just want everybody to remember is although right this moment, this moment in time, doesn't look so hot, just like with the financial crisis that Gary mentioned or other things that have happened, it isn't forever. Life right. will get better. 
we will do this together. I promise you, and your your uh, student friends and faculty will always be here for you. Yeah. So a couple of things that you said that I think are worthy of underscoring, and it wasn't really one of your five, but you basically said everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. So that's one thing that they should just set aside. The other thing is that they get real skills. They have real skills that they've developed while there. And that gets me to, to two other just quick points is one is, is you could also take this time to learn, mm-hmm. I mean, learn online, do things. But, and then the last one, which to me, hearing you really kind of, I think captures the spirit of Boston University and the college, and that's carpe diem, <laughs> you know, seize the moment. I mean, you are young, you have the capability to go out there and do interesting things. You can go interview people about this situation. You can write about this situation. You can do podcasts. There are lots of different things that you can take the skills you already have and use it to capture a moment that may be only once in a lifetime. And I would add this, it has become painfully obvious, Mariette, to your point earlier, communications is essential to a society in good times and in bad. And that has become obvious. And that's not a political comment, it's just an objective statement uh, across the board in whether it's in a crisis of this kind or just day-to-day running a business and dealing with people. So students should feel good that they have skills that are going to be, I think, increasingly in demand. Uh, particularly in the corporate world as as we go forward. I want to return to you now, Mariette. You're a science writer, right? And one of um, some renown. This is an issue that is, I think, hurting us both in this crisis, but also been challenging big corporations, uh, particularly over the past, I would say, decade. You've seen that, you know, science, fact, objective sort of analysis and insight have taken a backseat to political rhetoric. And as a result, in a lot of cases, people don't trust experts anymore. And scientists certainly are experts. I wrote a column today for PR Week, one of the points which is, you know, if you're in an in-house team at PR, communications team, make sure you find your Dr. Fauci, (laughs) right? The person who objectively and clearly will communicate what's going on. So, you know, how do you feel about this as a science writer, particularly? What do we do in education? What do we do more broadly in society to let the experts back in the room? So I love this question, obviously, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, and I will try to answer it in a concise way. I, I want to first preface it with a, a little bit of context, which I always find it is important. Humanity is always ignored. <laughs> Science <laughs> didn't like what the scientists were saying. You know, uh, at the beginning of this coronavirus crisis, a certain somebody called it a hoax, right? Among other things. You know, on the other hand, you mentioned, Gary, your beloved Dr. Fauci. Yes. You know, who's clearly engaged with folks in a way that they have found they um, could trust. So he's earned the trust of many. Um, we could also, we could do a whole show on, on, on you know, how we, we do that. Continue along in the context of it. So the, the fact that people accept or don't accept something they like or don't like, that, that is something that always does happen. And when we look at what actually how people feel about science as an endeavor, Pew Research Center has done, you must have seen, you know, studies over the many years. And so I looked up their latest uh, trust in science study from 2019. In that study, trust in science had actually slightly risen from 2017. Yep, that's correct, yeah. With 86% of the people polled having a great deal or a fair amount of, of trust. So, and I might remind us all that this is much higher than for folks like journalists like me or politicians or business leaders. Or so, PR flacks like Mike and I. <laughs> so, you know, and scientists are actually on par with military and, and often educators in terms of the trust. But where, where we get divided is Americans are not sure about the motivations of the scientists sometimes in a particular in particular cases. They're not sure if they uh, why they're saying something, right? And this trust around what researchers are saying about a particular topic in you know political theater, it also varies along party lines, with Democrats being generally more trusting of researchers and and conservatives or Republicans generally somewhat less. 
uh, another factor is Americans tend to trust people who are, are practitioners, like Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. When you counsel on something you really care about right now, or, or a medical service, perhaps, more than researchers who they think might have other motivations, like they're trying to get a grant or, or something like that. So all that being uh, known, you know, the, the challenge there that we all have to realize is that people understand that science is a human endeavor with some potentially human frailties. If it's okay, I'd like to talk about a couple of ways we can think Okay, absolutely. Is that okay? I just want to make sure I'm not going on too long. Like, oh, <laughs> no, this is no, great. No. And actually, this is, this is a great topic. I mean, <laughs> Gary and I have talked about this actually quite a bit. There was an article, a cover story, back in May of 2015 in National Geographic. The cover story was the war on science. Yeah, I remember that. Cover yeah, you know, and it also, it touched upon people being either left or right and where they ended up. But they also showed where on one level on the right, there's lots of doubts about climate change, even though the science overwhelmingly is there. But then even on the left, there were some doubts around vaccinations and around mm -hmm. genetically modified <laughs> organisms. Absolutely. And the science is overwhelmingly there. So it's a great question and take your time. And Marriott, I'm gonna put one more in here because I think this is where BU is particularly well positioned as a research university, you know, with a great communication school. And you think about it from a corporate point of view, uh, many, many companies are having trouble explaining their science mm. to people and including people on juries. Think of J&J &J on its talc, uh, its talc cases. The science appears to be on J&J's side but they cannot convince juries of that. So Mike and I, you can see, we just love talking about this. <laughs> so we'll shut up now and yeah, let and you. Listen. <laughs> and listen. I would like to do this uh, show where I interview the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought I'm, you know, I'm gonna say a few things that, that I've been thinking about. They're not maybe in a priority order, but um, so I, we, we just were talking about the human nature of science and, and motivation and and trust and how those things are all related. I think one way that researchers and others who are dealing with research information and conveying it is to recognize the human nature and get on top of it. <laughs> express and understand, if scientists express an understanding of the impact of what they're doing, instead of just, and I've been guilty of this, you know, blithely saying, here's a great new thing that we found out. Mm -hmm. Oh, the ethics, we're going to leave that for other people. I think that's, a, <laughs> that's one thing. So, you know, kind of lean into the, the humanity of it. it. And that goes double for if there's an error. How did you find the error? What, you know, how are you going to prevent it from it happening again? But another way that we get people to understand the science, or at least understand it, engage with it, is by participating in the first place, you know, and, and creating partnerships in the first place. A lot of times because people may not be comfortable sharing their research or they feel it's overly complicated or they feel like they have to quote unquote mm -hmm. dumb it down for people. Dumb it down, yeah. I've actually written about what I call inviting people in. These are smart people. They're just not smart in your area. <laughs> you would not be smart in theirs, right? Necessarily either. And if we have that attitude of inviting people in and collaborating with them, uh, research will go a lot farther. One example that I just just to name one, it's not a, a BU example, though I'm sure we have lots of BU examples, but a recent one is um, a researcher at MIT named Kevin Esbelt, who researches gene drives and you know genetically modified uh, creatures. We were talking about GMOs before. He looked at the problem of Lyme disease on Nantucket, specifically because it's an island, and went to their town in 2016, a few years ago now, and said, we have an idea. It could solve it, but only if you want it and only if you think this is something you want to work on together. And this was an idea of genetically engineering mice. It's called mice against ticks. So that they <laughs> wouldn't, you know, they'd be resistant to the, um, the Lyme tick organism yep. that, that transmits Lyme disease and the microbe rather. He's been in conversation with them and his researchers for some years now. And they're considering whether they want to do this work. He started with it, the idea, my point is he started with the idea of a partnership and a participatory science. And I think that the discussion around genetically modified organisms, even if they decide not to do it in Nantucket, will probably be a lot more open and more receptive to that, even that discussion. Because exactly. of so how can, how can we all help? 
one thing we can do with science because you know we look at the medical stories that come out they're hard driven by journal articles and when they're published one day caffeine is good for you one day <laughs> it better be good for me that's right <laughs> you know, always do that helps is also provide the context of that how does it fit in in the world of things i mean um Climate change stories are particularly fraught with this because we may not have provided context all the time. And I mean, in journalists certainly and others have, have learned more about this. And also saying things like 98%, 97% of all researchers agree with this. Mm -hmm. We had a tradition of what's now called false balance that came out of politics, where yeah. just because somebody disagreed, you give them almost equal time and mm -hmm. still that really slowed down the national conversation on climate, just as a, for instance. So invite people in, partner, participate. You know, I love citizen science, for instance, those activities. Yes. Give people a personal stake in what's going on, and that removes some of the mystery. Yes. I don't hit all the things you gentlemen would, would come up with, but those are some things that have been on my That's fantastic. I, I love invite people in. I think that's been part of the problem. So one last question. After sort of one full year as we approach that, what one thing has surprised you the most in becoming Dean of the College of Communication? And it can't be a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> Darn it. Yeah. That was my answer, right? <laughs> in my whole eight months of wisdom, yeah. <laughs> learning, learning something new every day, something yeah. like more than one thing new every well, day. There has to be some surprises, right? You know, actually, from my, you know, you might laugh at this, from my, from my interviews even, that uh -huh. months ago, last, last spring, I knew I would find myself among really brilliant, accomplished colleagues. You always want to be a member of a you know, club of cool people that you see. You know? <laughs> what I didn't realize, and I think you can only know, maybe in a pandemic, but even before that, is how supportive, warm, and kind they would be as you know as well both to me and to each other and this crisis has really brought out the the keep calm and carry on in all of us <laughs> i use i actually use agree as a headline on something and i you know that was a, a surprise coming from a corporate environment my entire 30 plus year career before this and and one that i will treasure and always remember well you'll have a memorable first year that's for sure, Marriott. And thank you for taking the time in the middle of all of this to join us on The Crux. It's been fantastic, and, and I've learned a few things. So thank you again for the time. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.